0: Dear God, we do thank you, our glorious Lord, uh, mighty Savior, for your redeeming love and work in and through our lives. Uh, We thank you this morning um, for the opportunity uh, to gather together. Uh, We pray for our brothers and sisters who aren't here or who can't be here today, uh, for whatever reason, that you might minister to them. Uh, For uh, the Schroeder family, Lord, we pray. Uh, That you'll be with Mark and uh, the rest of his family and uh, being by the side of his father. Lord, we ask that uh, he might recover from the heart attack and more than anything else, we ask that um, you'll grant him the faith to believe that you might spare his life, that he might um, come to understand and embrace the truth of your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Be with the rest of our teachers this morning, Lord, as they proclaim your truth to our children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Ecclesiastes, uh, it's really an autobiographical look, um, profile of a, of a man um, that really unmistakably points to Solomon. If you look at the title, it's the, the words of the preacher, the son of David, uh, the title certainly fits Solomon, um, the son of David, king in Jerusalem over Israel, um, or king in Jerusalem, um, the The author's strange voyage through um, this book certainly chronicles the life of one named Solomon um, and he was one who did who, who taught the people. Um, he's the man who wrote many proverbs, who else other than Solomon himself. So it certainly corresponds to his life. Um, no doubt in my mind that he wrote it I mean There's a little bit of controversy over that, but I think that's really beside the point. Um, Solomon uh, was writing as an old man, probably near the end of his life, um, primarily to warn the young people of Israel, of of his kingdom, um, certainly without omitting anyone else, um, warning them to avoid walking through life uh, uh, on a path of human wisdom. And he exhorts them uh, by uh, revealing the wisdom of God, which is the conclusion of the whole matter, as we will see. Uh, But the book, bottom line, is applicable to all who would listen, and the Bible is applicable this very day to all who will indeed listen. So its aim is to answer some of life's most uh, challenging questions. These are questions, questions in the book that are probably raised by uh, people that we know who who do not have a a living, a loving relationship with our Savior, but such a life or such a view um, really would would take the Book of Ecclesiastes and and see life from a ve- uh, very uh, skeptical perspective, a a harsh view of skepticism, which uh, many people we face um, adhere to, and solemn as he writes, experiences the effects of the curse in his writing, the curse, the, the fall of man, uh, the curse experienced through Adam, and in turn leads to a life of, of chasing after the wind. You know, why are we here? What are we doing? What is all this about? And when we get to the New Testament in Romans 8, Paul was probably echoing uh, Solomon's dissatisfaction when he wrote, the creation was subjected to futility. Solomon uses the word vanity. Futility. Now, this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, has been viewed by some as a kind of grueling or, or... Cynical view of life. Um, it's a kind of literature that, that is expressed really in the form of skepticism. Um, questions are raised, scratching our chin, wondering, raising our eyebrows, lifting our hand to heaven, so to speak, and raising a particular question, but it's followed up with an answer or answers that are rooted in godly wisdom that are rooted in eternity. So if to view something from the time-space continuum, and, you know, why are we here? What is all this about? This life is like a cycle. That which has happened before comes around to meet us again. We go on and on and on and on. And in chapter 2, in verse 22, it says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart "...with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation, even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. But then he says, this also I saw. Is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have any enjoyment?" For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, a a cyclical view of life is a very common view of life, especially um, in Greek culture. It's this idea of going um, round and round again. Um, It's empty. Life is simply material uh, but yet, it's mysterious and is very repetitious. So we open with the words of the preacher in chapter one, verse one: "The son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities," says the preacher. "Vanity of vanities, all is vanity." Certainly, a, a poetic form, uh, repetition expressing the uh, uh, the idea that. Uh, Life is futile. Now, this particular word or phrase is used 38 times in this book, expressing uh, many things that are uh, really hard to understand about life, and especially from a a, uh, humanistic uh, point of view. All earthly goals, ambitions, when when pursued as an end in themselves, produce no doubt only emptiness. And I think most of us have experienced that here, amen? Amen. Until God grabs hold of one's mind and heart and transforms us, it is a vicious cycle without understanding. Now, the word vanity, in our day, um, we'll think of uh, someone who's uh, egotistical, um, conceited. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines it as uh, an inflated pride in oneself or one's appearance. You know, we'll think of everything from uh, conceit to a, a, uh, a, a, a bathroom mirror or a, a, a dressing cabinet, you know, a vanity. But here the term vanity is not referring to pride as much as it is uh, referring to that which is done in vain, that which is futile. Uh, uselessness or pointlessness or uh, emptiness and within the book, you'll, you'll also recognize, in addition to vanity of vanities, um, another common phrase is that which is done under the sun. That which is done under the sun, and that which is done under heaven. Under the sun is the uh, realm or dominion of the world in which we live. And then, of course, heaven is the realm or domain um, for which God dwells. But there's a conflict being described. And the conflict is between those two realms. That in the place for which we exist in time and space, and that from which God exists outside of time and space. So here um, we we are faced with many human ideologies. um, And then we ask the question how do we live up to these ideals? You know, why do we exist? You know, and many people conclude that, you know what, you really only go around this crazy world once, so as you're going around, you might as well, what? Get all that you can. You know, live it up. That's a very natural, um, humanistic way of thinking. Um, So Solomon explores um, all these experiments, and he explains that particular kind of thinking, and uh, especially when it's separated um, from the heavenly domain the purposes of God. And it would no doubt lead to frustration. So let's read some of what Solomon writes here. Beginning in verse 2, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes and the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. What purpose is there in all of this, the writer writes. This is what he's pre- presenting, very pessimistic view of life, amen? <laughs> so he, here we see his observation of nature, um, human experience within this domain that is under the sun. And he concludes that in and of themselves, uh, in no way imparts purpose or meaning. So he's observing this endless cycle of nature. It's, it's a tedium. It's tiresome. It never ends. It's monotonous. None of it offers satisfaction. I mean, notice this, verse 8. The eye never has enough of seeing. Does it? Think about technology. Um, you know, I'm talking with friends and stuff about maybe going over to um, Apple. You know, moving from, or moving from PC to... To what's it called Mac yeah p c to Mac yeah, This is going to take a lot of training for me, but when you think about it, and I think about all of this technology mac and and all of this stuff, and what's his name Steve Jobs dying, and you know he's being heralded as this some messianic figure almost because of what he's you know accomplished uh, well you know. S- sad to say, and it grieves one's hearts. You know, he's, he's, he, he died and stepped into eternity. Now what? So what? Had, did he impact the world? Yeah, he impacted the world, I'll say. For what? Well, certainly the fact that the eye is never satisfied with seeing. You get an iMac, phone, number, whatever. And it's not good enough because three months later it will be replaced. Right? The eye is never satisfied. Listen to this brother speak. Thousands of years ago, man, this is eternal wisdom. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. The ear with hearing. We need ear candy and we need eye candy. Right? And a lot of preaching is like that. It's ear candy. Instead of preaching the whole counsel of God, you give them what they want, because we, we fear we'll lose them. So we see how much impact the world has when God's people do not stand as a light in contrast to that darkness. All my labor is in vain. Bottom line, when, it, when I perish, it perishes with me. Uh, Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has been already in the ages before us. Verse 12, I the preacher have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom All that is done under heaven, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What an opening statement. That the teacher has confronted us with a situation that today might be referred to as what we know as existentialism. You know, man exists in a series of of experiences in life. And he's unable in the midst of it to discover any onward meaning. You know, you know, it's been said on one's gravestone it's the year you were born and the year that you die and everything's wrapped up in the dash. Really. And the hope is that in the dash that one received the glorious goodness and grace that is found in In God's son alone Jesus Christ because that's where true meaning is because that's eternal so if man merely exists in order to make the best of what comes his way then what I watched an interview last night with this famous movie star Johnny Depp I think Johnny Depp is cool I I just, I love people. I love watching people. I love hearing people interviewed because I like to see what their worldview is, where they come from, and and what makes them tick. Musicians, actors. But it's interesting, you know, he was asked the question um, Do you have faith? Larry King asked him the question. He goes, I have faith in my kids. What does that get you? He goes, if you mean in a religious sense, no, not really. I have, not in a religious sense, but faith in your kids? I mean, in a sense, I think I know where he's coming from. But with regard to life, you know, he basically said, uh, you know, the first 20 years of my life, Hollywood looked at my life and said, um, I was a complete failure. Until one movie, this Pirates of the Caribbean deal, I've never, I never, I haven't seen the movie, but, you know, you simply play the card you were dealt. I and mean, everyone's played a different hand. Everyone's given a different hand. That's an existential view of life. Or others simply drop out altogether. Amen. Remember the hippie movement? What was the phrase? Something drop out. What was it? What was it? Thank you, Don. <laughs> if anyone's gonna remember, I knew it would be you, brother. Don and I go way back. I've known Don since 1983. Tune in, turn on, and drop out, right? Wow, what a deep, what a, what deep wisdom from our culture. Right, Don? What, what, you know, come on, the hippie movement, what a joke. But some, you know, people simply drop out. And and although most people believe that life has some deeper meaning to it, the, 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 the next question is, you know, if I could only find it. So the word of the preacher here continues to find for us the the, the vanity of wisdom. In verse uh, 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more you know, he says, the more there is to be frustrated over. <laughs> you know? Einstein never denied that there was a God. All of the knowledge he was given, he says, there has to be a creator. The problem is there was, a, there, there was, a, uh, there was no relationship bet- between he, as far as we know, and that creator. You can claim higher power all day, but if it's not by the grace of God, the effectual call of God that comes to the center and draws the center and opens the mind and the eyes and the heart to receive his redeeming love and redeeming work, everything is empty. How thankful are we for knowing what we know, amen? For knowing who we know. Salvation. We are a graced people. Life, therefore, is not vain. Life is not empty. Life is full. It's predetermined by by the one who who made us and, and saved us. So there's you still hear this frustration, and as the writing continues, we uh, we, we we see this frustration. You know, to, to, to pursue life in order to find fulfillment or significance um, is is this never ending uh, endeavor almost. Notice, chapter 2, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with what, beloved? Pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this is also vanity. Enjoy yourself. This, this is hedonism. To experience maximum pleasure, to take whatever you can get, to follow your, your, your desires, your uh, lustful um, creativity, if you will. Anything that may arise from within, chase it. Go for it. Grab it. Uh, when I was growing up, I, I've, I've loved music. I always loved music. And one of my favorite bands in the 70s and the 80s was the band Queen, Freddie Mercury, um, this incredible, incredibly gifted man, Great songwriter, singer, unbelievable voice. He's done everything from rock and roll to opera. And Freddie Mercury was described by his closest friends as being a hedon of all hedons. Hedonistic man. A pleasure seeker. The poster poster child of, of hedonism constantly moving from one pleasure to the next in entertainment, amusement, experience with drugs and and, in sexual and drunken revelry. You know, anything that will, anything that might release dopamine in the brain in mass, hedonism says, go for it. Seek pleasure. You know, Paul wrote about this. He said, why am I in danger every hour? Right, he's the the, the apostle preaching the gospel. What do I gain if, if humbly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Right, here he's in the place of danger constantly for preaching the gospel, and he said this. Here's his conclusion. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow what? We die. If the dead do not raise... Then we should get what we can. If this is all there is, hedonism makes sense. If this is all the pleasure that we'll experience, Freddie was right. But Freddie died of AIDS. And uh, when AIDS was just coming on the scene saying, hey, this is something weird, and I think there's a connection to how people live their lives back in, I think it was the early 80s, if I remember. uh, One of his managers said, "Eh, "You know, this new disease out there is going to have an effect on the way you're living your life." Ready? He goes, "No, full steam ahead." That's hedonism, seeking pleasure. Paul continues, and he says, "In addition to this, if we do not raise, if the dead do not, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die." And he said, "This, do not be deceived." Bad company ruins good morals. So Ecclesiastes points out for us the vanity, the emptiness, the folly of seeking to find meaning to your very existence by way of self-gratification. It's empty. Notice the frustration of unlimited wealth. Beginning in verse 2, I said of laughter it is mad, and of pleasure what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. Look at this massive irrigation system. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves... Um, who were born in my house, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had ex- expanded in doing it, expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So there's a certain sense of frustration in the midst of having everything that you could possibly attain for yourself. You know, a lot of people think that unlimited money means unlimited satisfaction. You ever met anyone like that? Unlimited money means unlimited satisfaction. It will lead to a life of fulfillment in their minds. Not so... So Solomon, he expresses himself uh, by way of these extensive building projects and vineyards and gardens. He's the largest owner of cattle and sheep, gold, silver. He was a connoisseur of music. He had the best soloists. He had the greatest choirs, all at his disposal, and many, many, many women, many concubines. Verse 17, So I hated life. What is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and striving or chasing after the wind. So here, time is understood as interpreted as being under the sun, uh, merely under the realm or domain um, of this world. So the teacher, up to this point, is frustrated because he's, his thinking is earthbound, it's under heaven. And then we see something of time here, chapter 3. For everything there is a season, a time for everything under the sun. Time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, time to mourn and a time to dance. That would make a great song. What is it? Sixty-two, Don? Sixty-three? The Birds. 66, my bad, Don. Uh (laughs) To everything turn, 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 there is a season turn, turn. Remember the song? It's right from here, from Ecclesiastes. The time to be born, a time to die. Great song. Because it comes from the Bible. (laughs) So life has uh, many seasons that we go through, beloved. Um the wise person who who evaluates time and seasons um, in his life here on earth and uh, certainly under the perspective of a sovereign God. And this is why I believe that having a deep, rich trust and understanding in the sovereignty of God helps us to live life with godly contentment in whatever we face. The more we understand the sovereignty of God, and the providential care of God, the more deeply, I believe, we understand our Savior, and the more deeply we understand the unconditional love of our Savior as we dwell in time and space, the more content we will be, even in the midst of suffering. And and that's what the body must encourage one another with. It's very important. Because much of life is made up of suffering, amen? In this life, Jesus said, you will suffer but we do not need to be given to despair. He's overcome the earth. He's overcome the world. He's overcome the system. And he is certainly one acquainted with grief, eh, amen? man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He understands human suffering, and we can rest in him. Let me see here, running out of time. Ecclesiastes 3 again. Verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. In chapter 4, we see um, evil under the sun. And where man dwells, there is evil. Amen? Amen. Those who share the, that fallen nature of Adam, there will be evil. There always has been. And there always will be. There's only one you did not share in such a nature, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. There was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. We see the vanity of wealth and power if you jump over to chapter 5. Here's such wisdom. We want to teach our young people this, our children this. There's nothing wrong with money. Money's not evil. Amen. What is evil? It's the love of money. Easily worshipped. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Verse 10, chapter 5. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The brother's never satisfied. You can have a billion dollars and not be satisfied. When this uh, Madoff, uh, 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 Madoff the trickster, the Ponzi scheme master, uh, er- er- Ernie, is his name is right, Ernie Madoff. Madoff with everybody's money <laughs> and is now in prison, still with a prideful arrogance. I heard from people who are in prison with him, the, the, the regular convicts, say this guy still, he has an air about him. And that's what white-collar prisons are like. These, like uh, many guys who've done time with white-collar criminals say they still walk around with an air about him. Only God can break a man, truly. Billionaires who were taken by Madoff, so they lost a few hundred million. When you got a couple billion, you, we would think it doesn't matter. It matters so much so that some of those men committed suicide. The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. God cannot serve two masters. You either serve money, you either serve God, or you serve mammon, right? He cannot serve both. He will love one and despise the other and so on. Cannot serve two masters. And then in chapter 7, we see a contrast between wisdom and folly. We see this throughout the Proverbs as well, time and time again. Uh, Verse 5, chapter 7, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, right? You can hang out with your buddies all day long, and though you are a fool in your folly, they'll slap you on the back and tell you how great great you are, right? So don't hang with fools. (laughs) Seek wisdom. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise. Let a wise man rebuke you. Let a wise woman rebuke you. Seek people who are middle-aged and up. Seek their wisdom. Receive rebuke. Verse 6, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. I am personally well acquainted with that. Quick to become angry makes you look like a fool and lead you to do foolish things and say foolish things. You know when God delivered you? Like when God delivered me when he saved my soul, I I had a temper problem. And uh, boy, did he take care of that. But boy, does he raise his ugly head now and again. You can see it. And then finally we see that death comes to all. Chapter 9. Uh, we don't have much time to look at it, so let's go to the conclusion of the whole matter. The conclusion and answer to all of the questions that people face in life, to the skeptic, to the critic. Uh, I was talking to someone this morning as we were. Uh, I met with the Sunday school teachers, and he was telling me a story of uh, corresponding with his brother, who uh, he lives on the East Coast, and every couple of years. I guess through Facebook or corresponding on email or whatnot, uh, there's always these th- questions thrown out. Questions that he really doesn't want answers to. But basically, you know, he's looking to pick a fight. And uh, so he he uh, his brother who attends here raises questions with regard to uh, an eternal perspective, and that of course um, leads his brother to mock and, and ridicule anyone who who follows. Um, the truth of God. Uh, But then again, their reasoning doesn't get you any further than Solomon's reasoning through this book. You know, they don't raise questions because they want to know. It's typically because they want to fight for the most part. So the conclusion in chapter 12, 1 and 2 to begin with. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil day comes and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Boy, the wisdom to be had here. Remember your creator when you're youthful, when you're young, when you have all this ambition and all this drive and all this vision and all this passion. Don't try to get around your creator. Don't try to do it without your creator. Remember your creator when you're young before the day draws to an end. And then here we go at the end of the chapter. I'll just read from verse 9 on. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed. Our collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. My son... Beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There's no end, and much study is wearisome of the flesh. The end of the matter all has been heard. Here it is. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the matter at hand. This is the end of the matter at hand. This is the answer to your work. This is the answer to our talents. This is the answer to our ambition, to our abundant our abundance, our scarcity, our suffering. All of the answers. Or I should say the answer to all of the question. All the questions raised here. Um, the answer, conclusions for for our joy, for our contentment. Is God? Fear God. Why? Because we're made in His image. And those of us that are redeemed, not only do we share the image of God, we 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 have our full and complete identity in Jesus, the Son of God. Your identity is in Christ. So when we go through life and we say, "What I, I want to be identified as this? How do I want to be recognized?" Well, number one, we're in Christ. We are in the Lord. It's been said, and I quote, Your life will be evaluated not in terms of this world, not of the here and now, or the cyclical pattern of this world, but our lives, their significance, their value, and their worth will be judged by the one who judges from an eternal perspective. The one who will either say, Depart from me, I never knew you, Or, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And when he says that, here it is. This is beautiful. Every ounce of sweat that has come from your brow, from the brow of your head, in your labor, every ache in your heart, every pain in your soul will find its fullness of meaning and significance, and you will discover that everything you experienced in your life counts. Nothing is futile under the Lord of heaven. Amen? Nothing's futile. It all has a purpose, and if we're in Christ, though we may not know the immediate significance now, we know the eternal significance, all men beloved, and we persevere by faith and encourage one another with the words of the preacher. Fear God, keep his commandments. We're fallen human beings, amen? We are a fallen people who need a redeemer. We need life, we need the illumination of eternal life, and it comes from God himself. And you have it in Christ. So we have hope. This is not some futile attempt at life for us, amen? We're in Christ. And we live for his glory. And he is so good. So life can get frustrating. Let's face it, amen? We can feel like Solomon. But we press on. When I was wrestling- I read this; it ruined it. It was a slap in the face. I hated this book because I—what do you mean everything's to You know, so it's a slap in the face, but it's a good way to—it doesn't sit well with you. Right. It's a good way to examine your heart. It is good. Good point for you, brothers and sisters in the fellowship hall. One of our brothers said that before the the Lord saved him, he would read this book. He hated this book because he wanted to be in the driver's seat. He wanted to be God. He wanted to uh, fulfill every aspiration and seek enjoyment and fulfillment in this life and all that this life um, has to offer, I guess from a hedonistic point of view, I guess you would say? Fair to say? Yes, he says. So there you go. Anybody else? 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 30 to 33, 34. Evil company corrupts good habits, Paul said. And you know, we're tempted. Especially when you're younger, you have friends, and you go out, you want to be a light to them, and you know... That if I go over here, while I am the light, there's going to be this temptation to be drawn into the dark, to be drawn into worldliness. And, uh, you know, sometimes there's just this weakness that we have and uh, God always leaves the way of escape for us, does he not? And it it may be forsaking the uh, relationship for a period of time because that evil company is corrupting what God would have me to be, and that is a representative of Jesus Christ, a redeemed sinner saved by grace. So that's his goodness and that's his kindness that he enables us to have. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for um, the words um, of this preacher and uh, the reminder of uh, eternal significance um, compared to um, worldly futility Um, Thank you that we have hope, that we know the truth, that we've been granted the grace to see and to believe and to embrace your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Prepare us for corporate worship now, we pray. Amen.